0: Right, well, good morning everybody, as you've heard my name is Bernie and I've been asked to uh, bring the message uh, this morning. It's nice to be, uh, have the opportunity to be up the front when I, I look out, it's been a, a little while and I've forgotten just how good looking we all are. And you only really get that by looking out on, on this, way. Well, I think we're quite a good looking bunch going this way. So, uh, what was that John, sorry? Should have gone to Specsavers. Should have gone to Specsavers, no that's <laughs> uh, not to... Okay, well, we're continuing the story of, uh, we're continuing the series that only started last week in the Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, so we're in 1 Corinthians, and we'll be reading from, in verse one, we'll be reading from verse six to about verse 10, and then picking up another passage in Corinthians one, verse three. Now, Corinth, is there a picture up there? Yes, anybody been there? Anybody been there? Yes. You have, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Jane and I have been there on our many, many missionary <laughs> journeys to Greece for our two-week holiday. Um, we always feel that we're called to that way. It's nice to have nice to have Mark as an elder here. By the way, you know, if you feel that uh, you agree with us that we've been called to the Greek islands to do missionary work, then of course we would welcome the sponsorship that would enable that to happen. So anytime then, Mark, okay? You're going to come with us, right? That's right? I've already got a few other people signed up. It's really interesting, we went there, I think a long time ago, before uh, um, before the children were born. So it goes, it's in there over 40 years ago. It was good fun, we got there by bus. It's great, you, you, it's, uh, if you get the chance go around, you can see it, it's so interesting because when you look at the roads, you can see all the grooves in the roads cut out by the wheels of the uh, chariots the Roman chariots at the time. So it's all the grooves in the road, which is a little bit like modern day Verwood really. You can see <laughs> the chariots in there anyway. So what about Corinth? Well, it was a major Greek port in the Roman Empire. So there's a little bit of a recap here, it was a major part in, in Greece. It had only been recently rebuilt in about, eight, uh, about BC 59 by, by the Romans, by authority of the um, Roman Empire, and it was made capital of the Roman province of Achaea. So it was a significant place. It would have been a bustling port, it would have been a multinational port, it would have been multicultural as well, so it was a very, very diverse place. Now the church itself, the Corinthian church, was founded by Paul. You can find out the story of that if you go to Acts 18, verses 1 to 18, you can read about that. They experienced a bit of opposition when it was first set up. But Paul seemed to have been given by God quite a lot of grace. He stayed there 18 months, which I think is one of the longest times he actually he actually invested into the setting up of, of the church. So he had a quite a solid foundation. It was later strengthened by a guy called Apollos. We read about him at the end. Now, Apollos, quite significant in the story of of Corinth, was a a Jew, but he was brought up, he came from the Greek uh, town of Alexandria and you get the sense that when you read about Apollos that he's sort of grown up with the with the debating skills and all of that that came with being part of Greek Greek culture because um, he debated fiercely with the Jews at the time and was and really um, spoke out for and argued for the reality of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He uh, became, a, uh, he was, became a Christian, not quite sure when, but he, when he was in Ephesus, he was taken into the home of Priscilla and Aquila, who were in turn were, were disciples of uh, um, Paul, and then he was, they discipled him a bit more, and then sent him back from Ephesus to Corinth, so he was strengthened by them. It also was quite possible, we don't know, but it's also quite possible that some of the Jews there within the church had been uh, in Jerusalem at the time of the outpour of the Pentecost and hearing Peter's talk because they've come from every part of, the, of, of all the provinces around for the, for the Passover so some might have been there and as we heard last week there was a lot of strength God had blessed this place with quite a bit first of all we, re- we read in the, in the first part of the, of the letter that they were enriched with grace they had a lot of grace they were enriched with knowledge and they were not lacking in spiritual gifts. It's the, it's the book of the Bible that has the most in it about the, about the use and practice of spiritual gifts. So it had clearly been a place that had been blessed and anointed by God. It was very diverse. It had Jews, it had Greeks. We also know it had rich and poor uh, in, in there as well, which is fantastic. And the other thing that was really to commend in the church, it seemed to be very effective at reaching ordinary people. Um, um, Paul picks up on this when he actually comments on them and says, not many of you are wise, influential or of noble birth. This was no middle-class church. This was one that reached ordinary people. And so in that sense, it was was a God-anointed and a God-appointed church. But but it had problems. And that's where I'm gonna pick up. And I'm gonna read now from 1 uh, Corinthians 1. And I'm going to, unusually usually for me, I'm gonna be talking from the message. And I think the message really gets over the sense of what was going on and what some of the, the problems were. Because after Paul's introduction and his com- commendation of the church, uh, from verse 10, we read these things. He says this, after saying, that he will never give up, God will never get up on you, never forget that. We then read this, but I have a serious concern to bring up with you, my friends. Using the authority of Jesus, our master, I'll put it as urgently as I can, you must get along with each other. You must get along with each other. You must learn to be considerate of one another cultivating a life in common. Now, why did he say this? Well, he says, Paul says, I bring this up because some from Chloe's family, that clearly must be a family that Paul knew was in the church at the time, brought a most disturbing report to my attention, that you're fighting among yourselves. Hmm, that's not good. I'll tell you exactly what I was told. You're all picking sides, going around saying, I'm on Paul's side, or I'm for Apollos, or Peter is my man, or I'm in the Messiah group. Then over to chapter three. But for right now, friends, I'm completely frustrated by your unspiritual dealings with each other and with God. You're acting like infants in relation to Christ, capable of nothing more than nursing at the breast. Well, there's somebody who's not mincing his words. Well then, I'll nurse you since you don't seem capable of anything more. As long as you grab for what makes you feel good or what makes you look important, are you really much different than the babe at the breast, content only when everything's going your way way. When one of you says I'm on Paul's side and another says I'm for Apollos, aren't you being totally infantile? Subtlety is definitely not part of the equation here. He doesn't mince his words. And the reason was that was although there were strengths across this church, there were significant weaknesses built in as well. The first one is, there were, a, there were a lot of sinful practices. And later on, we find out that one of those sinful practices was so bad, Paul says, it would, even the pagans, even unbelievers wouldn't be doing that sort of thing. Um, so that comes later. But first, Paul addresses the other problem, which is there were divisions and functionalism in the church. There was tribalism based around loyalty to senior church figures. So I have repeated that twice on my uh, overhead, sorry about that. Paul, Apollos, Peter, even Christ, they were grabbing hold of these people and, and building groupings around them. Now there's nothing to suggest that there was any problem between Paul and Apollos or Peter themselves. This is something that was originating from the people within the church. Furthermore, the rich were using communion to humiliate the poor. There were lawsuits between believers. They were suing each other. There was meat. They were arguing over meat sacrificed to idols. And there was the prob- the, the very thing that they'd been blessed with was this abundance of spiritual gifting. There was actually argument about in terms of the prominence and the use of spiritual gifts. Of course, we would never do such a thing as that, would we? Do you know what I like about the fact about the letter of the Corinthians is that it's there in the Bible at all. If I was God's publicist, if I wanted to to sort of create a, a good impression about what the faith in Christ actually means, there are certain bits in the Bible that I would suggest to God that he left out. And the letters of the Corinthians will be one of them. Because this church was a bit of a shambles. There was argument, there was bitching going on. And I would have thought, actually God, if you want to portray your bride, your church as as the place to be, I would leave that out. But actually God's wiser than that. Because the reason why, why this is there is to provide us with a balance. We came from when we were looking at the vision uh, for, for the church. We come from uh, acts two verse 42 where this predominantly Jewish church. They all had everything in common. They all met from house to house. There were three thousand believers being added they, It was one of the sense of being in the apostles teaching having communion. Everything was wonderful, and we can obtain an idealized vision of what church can be. And by leaving and putting Corinthians in, I think God is actually saying, now guys, it doesn't always work quite like that. We're this side of heaven. Church can be a struggle. And if you're relatively new to the church life, if you're relatively new, I just want to give you a little warning about this place, about NLCCC. Yes, it's wonderful. You come in and you meet some wonderful people. But don't expect perfection. We're all human beings here. We all, on an individual and a family level, we have issues. There are issues in the church. You know, they're not that unpleased that you're not, they're not confronting you as when you're walking through the door. That's great. But don't pretend that sometimes you will rub up against something and you'll think, what is that going on? or, oh, I'm not sure I should be here because that's happening. The only reason I say that is because if you then say, well, I'm off to another church, you'll find exactly the same thing there. Amen. <laughs> the issues might be different, but the problem is that there's always there. We are not perfect, we're saved, we're given the righteousness of Christ, we're covered. In his righteousness, but the working out of that is that we as individuals and we as a chair as churches, are works in, pro- in, in, in process. Amen. We have an anointing of God that is going is to deliver us, but, w- but at the same time, we, our salvation has to be worked out and work through issues and work through, and work through challenges. Now I find a comfort in that because that means I don't have to be perfect. To be here, you know, and I think that 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 that's great, because uh, if I was looking for a perfect church, there'd be no point me being in there because it would cease to be perfect as soon as I walked in through the door. So it's a problem. And the problem that that Paul picks up most of, all, uh, firstly, is about this whole issue of of their their links to individuals. I'm on Paul's side, I'm for Apollos, or Peter is my man, or I'm in the Messiah group. Now, on one level, it's understandable that people relate, we all of us relate to some people more easily than we relate others to others. Now on that sort of level, that in itself is not necessarily or automatically wrong. When we look at this list of people, for example, Paul Paul had invested his time in the church, so therefore some of these people would have become Christians through the work and ministry of Paul. And you always have a sense, at least I do, I always hold in, in a particular affection the people who first led me to Christ. You can't help that, can you? You owe a, a debt of love to that person who did that, or those people over the time who, who did that. Apollos, well, he was, quite a, he was quite a guy. He really took on, he took on the Jews. He really established a faith. So maybe some people thought, wow, well, he's my guy. Also, because Apollos, though, was a Jew, had got a very strong Greek background, maybe, and I'm speculating, I appreciate that, maybe those people who had been Greeks, could connect with him a bit more. Or Peter, some were saying, even Christ. Now, that's strange because you think, well, we're Christ followers, so nothing wrong with that. But what they were doing was sort of saying, well, I'm of Christ, therefore I'm better than you. So preferences by themselves, connecting with some people more than others by themselves is not automatically wrong. So when do preferences become problems? Because that was the issue here, preferences were becoming problems. Now, I'll give you sort of a, 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 an inane example. It is a pretty inane example, I think, but just to try and get a sense of of when things can cross over. Um, Al Julie. Um, I don't know if you, um, some of you may know or may not know, she spent two years out in Thailand working with a mission orphanage out, out there, and uh, a mission orphanage and uh, a, a child rescue center. Uh, she absolutely loved doing that. So on our, for our 25th wedding anniversary, Jane and I, we went out to Thailand to meet, to meet with Julie, and then we went on to Australia to see uh, Jane's sister. While we were out in Thailand, we went to uh, the Thai church that was there. And it was great. We all felt very much at home. We didn't understand a word of it, um, but that didn't matter. There was somebody who was trying to, who, who, who was really good and was translating for us, really nice guy uh, that Judy knew was helping to translate for But also the way they did church was different. It was clearly a Word and Spirit church. Even though I didn't understand the words. you, you could tell. The Bible was central, the Spirit was central, but a couple of little things went on. For example, the service was three hours or more um, but having said that, nobody was expected, seemed to be expected to attend for the whole thing. There were people coming in, there were people going, drifting in and out, and that sometimes they got people to stand up, and I thought, oh, we'd we'll never do that. Oh, good grief, oh, that's a bit embarrassing. So, uh, but afterwards, they had in the courtyard around where they were having their meeting, they had uh, a meal had pots going everywhere, and we were, everyone was all piled into that, to, and we all were offered Thai food. I can't stand Thai food. <laughs> James all right with it. This is not westernized Thai food, this is their Thai Now, I fully appreciated it because they were being hospitable. They were giving out a very, very little. Those people had very, very little. And Jesus rightly says we're to eat whatever's put in front of us, and I did eat what was ever put in front of me. But there was a bit in me that couldn't just get this image of a plate of sausage and chips (laughs) away from me. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, because I'm a sausage and chip guy, that's where I came from, all right? So that's not, so for me, if I was to then go off the following day and I'd said, oh, Jamie, I just took a murder. Let's come in to see if we can find someone that does sausage and chips. That by itself wouldn't be wrong. Or meeting up with somebody else who felt the same as I did and just fancied some sausage and chips. But the, pro- pro- the problem is we could then become actually, I think what we do, is quite a few of us who prefer sausage and chips. So I think what we'll do is we'll form a sausage and chip group. <laughs> And one of the important things about that is that people who come in have got to be people who like sausage and chips, you know, and then out then of that, we can say, well, we're the sausage and chip group. And then we can say, well, actually, we don't want to eat any of this muck that we're given on, 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 on Sunday. That's how we could be, couldn't we? And we could say, actually, we want to insist that you provide us with, 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 with sausage and chips. Now, it's because of my background and, and where I come from. And actually, I know how hard it is. And it was interesting, I was thinking back to when we when, at one time when we looked at Ver Family Church a few years back, and we recognised that 40% of people who made up Verde Family Church originated from outside the United Kingdom. And I know it's hard. People have told me it's hard sometimes, they get homesick. They're hard for the fact that it's not like it was done back then. so I get that. But we could have formed this this group and we could have said, right, from now on, we want to insist that we're sausage and chips served on the service. And in fact, look, if we don't get that, we're gonna break away and we're gonna form a sausage and chips church. At points we start to form groups, we won't mix with others, we become cliquey, we don't want other people to come and, to come and join us. And this happens in church life, where our preferences begin to start to form groupings. When, when we form a group and nobody new is added in, or only those who are similar to us begin to become in. And the problem with these preferences or problems in the Corinthians church is that they were taking pride in one man over another. I'm a Paul, I'm a Apollos, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Apollos. They're, these guys were claiming to be wise. They were, they were arrogant. We read in verse 4, 4, 418, there was jealousy, there was quarrelling between all these groups. And what they were doing was saying is that they were actually promoting their own, these things to build up themselves. It's a bit like when you choose, people seem to, even though they never live there, choose to, su- to support Manchester City or Liverpool as football teams. Because they're big. And you can say, well, I'm a Manchester, you know, when Manchester City win the, win the league. I'm a Manchester City supporter. I'm better than you because you're a mere Bournemouth supporter. Okay, fair enough, they've got a point. but, um, um, but But it's about building up. What they were doing was was actually treating the right celebrities and using that to build themselves up. Paul's a great guy, I associate with Paul, I'm I'm, I'm a great guy, I'm forming this group, this party. It's all about them, what they were doing was playing politics with the church in order to meet their own needs. And it was wrecking the church in spite of all the blessing that it had. Now, we have to ask the question, I think, why is unity important? Why is this a problem? Surely, we, you know, people don't want it, they can just, we can all just go off and do our, own, uh, do our own thing. Why is it important? Well, to answer that question, it's tempting to think first of the church, but actually, in everything that we do, when, when we, we're Christ followers, is we have to put God at the centre of everything first. We have to try and see things from God's perspective first of all. And why is unity important? Well, it's important to God because firstly, it's the prime characteristic of God. God is unity. He is three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. A perfect, wonderful diversity an amazing. Difference of expression. We, when, we, when we think of God the Father, we, we, we conjure up, and I know it's an imperfect image, but nonetheless, we, we're encouraged to sort of conjure up a different feel than when we think about Jesus, who is our saviour and our brother and our friend. And when we think about the Holy Spirit, we, we, we have a different sort of image of, of, of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works and who, who he is. But they exist in perfect unity. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So anything that is of division is not of God and therefore has to be from the opposition. It does not reflect the character of God. And that's why unity is important from God's point of view, because it is meant to be a reflection of the character. of God, I thought it's like he created us, he created mankind in his own image to reflect the unity of, of God. Now, male, female, God, the tr- a Trinitarian earthly picture that is a reflection of, 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 the, Trinity, of the Trinity of the Godhead itself. A second reason why it's important to God is that the unity is a prophetic picture of God's reconciling work. You know, one of the, the great uh, um, criticisms that people from outside the church will level at the church is, well, it's all really saying that, but you lot don't get on with each other. And I know things have improved a bit, but I still have to say the church in the West is not good. It's not been good. Because, actually, the whole point of God's reconciling work, when he, when he comes to us, he, he, he changes, he brings us back to himself. We're separated from him by sin. He died on the cross, then he rose again to bring us back into the, into the, to the family, to reconcile the, us to a miles apart, the holy, perfect God, our sinful people, separated by an impassable gap, God brings us. To back to himself, he reconciles us back to himself. Now, in bringing us back to himself, the evidence of that is that we're brought back to each other. It's a bit like, you look at, a, uh, you look at the, the spokes of a wheel, a bicycle wheel, with God at the centre of the hub of that wheel. As the spokes get closer to God, so in turn, they get closer to each other. And that's, so without that picture, it denigrates the reconciling work of God because unity in that sense is the framework in which true diversity can be expressed. There's neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free man or female for we are all one in Christ. This is radical stuff. We, we We don't have to go back Years to look at the radical nature of this. What we're saying is in Christ, a Hamas leader and a Jewish freedom fighter can dance together before the Lord in rejoicing over the salvation that Christ brings. That is how radical the gospel is. The radical transformation of us uh, that he brings about so that we are connected and reconciled to God should be radical enough that our relationship with everybody else is radically transformed, that we can love those that previously rubbed us up the wrong way, that we can hate them. Not that we're the same, okay, I want to just get that but that we're united in the same love for the Father. You know, we're not meant to be the same. you are not meant to be. When he says, where's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, it doesn't mean that we, we ditch our Jewish background or our Greek background or that, but we use it to provide this rich tapestry in which the church becomes a vibrant coloured thing, really. You know, it's a bit like, um, you know, painting by numbers. You can have you, we can have painting by numbers and only have two 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 numbers. Well, it'd be a boring picture, wouldn't it? It's meant to be rich. It's meant to be. It's meant to be diverse. Revelation five nine seven nine. Out of every nation, out of every tribe, out of there. it's going to be a terrific knees up in heaven, and it's going to be done in different ways with different people. And there is a temptation amongst us while we're living that out because that is a bit uncomfortable to wanna keep our churches, when church leaders can be the same, I know that's temptation that we sort of keep it narrow because it's easy to manage, but actually the church is meant to be a godly mess. It's meant to be full of non-Christians, new Christians, vulnerable Christians, Christians are going off all over the place, Christians from over here, Christians from over there, old Christians, young Christians. If men all become together because that's what family is. It's, it's, you know, families are a bit of a mess and they're great, They're they're better for it. So, that's brilliant. And then finally, the other thing from God's point of view is that God hates division. know so if you thought about God hating stuff, so this is again, this is strong. This is even more significant than the, than the sexual sin that's coming up later. That's why this comes first in the, in the letter. The Lord hates a man who stirs up dissension among brothers can't put it any stronger than that. And why does God hate division? Because it disfigures the bride. While he is making the bride beautiful for himself, we can then actually disfigure the bride and scar it. People get hurt. Lives are ruined through church division. We've been on the end of that. It took us three years to recover from where we came from before, because of the, the bullying and stuff that went out. And if I hadn't been at Morelands at the time it happened, I wouldn't. I would have stopped going to church because of all that was all that was going on there, because I couldn't reconcile people who claimed maturity in Christ not with their opinion, but with their behaviour and their practice, and it was too. It was too much, it hurts people. And i tell you who it hurts most, the people who are invisible, the people who are new to the faith, the people who just started coming along. They're never seen again. And what does Jesus say? It, what do you do if somebody spoils a child, a child, a child of faith, it's better for them that a millstone was tied around their neck and they were thrown in the water. This is strong stuff. God hates, it's unity. So if we're not all to be the same, but Paul urges us to agree, clearly Paul isn't saying we must agree with one another about everything like which, where the chairs go out, how we should do community work and that sort of stuff. That's not, I don't think, what Paul's saying. But what he wants us to do is agree on the fundamentals of where unity flows from. So where does unity flow from? Well, unity flows from three things. And the first one is a unifying person. Unifying person. It comes from Jesus. We read in Ephesians 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father overall. One Lord. Why are we here? We're here because of Jesus, aren't we? We experienced his love breaking into our lives. You know, if you want to know what becoming a Christian is, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's asking, inviting Jesus to come in to break into your heart and to become Lord of it, to hand the controls of our life over to God, over to Jesus and say, my life wasn't up to much before you, before you, but now I'm giving myself to you. Come and take over my life. And we follow him out of love for that. And he is saying that every single one of us. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, and that is our Lord Jesus. There is one faith, and what is that faith? Well, it's faith in Jesus, isn't it? It's belief in everything that he did, that he died on the cross for us, that in doing that, he took away all our sin forever, past, present, future. we declared not guilty. He then gave us his his righteousness. He then, as he raised from the dead, he raised us up from the dead too. And he seated us with him in, in, in heavenly places. And we believe it and we trust it and we stake our very lives and existence on it. That's the one faith. And we share that. And these are overriding things. There's one baptism. Now, I may be wrong, I don't know, but I'm taking this as water baptism. We're baptised into, as Paul says, not Paul uh, as part says, you don't baptise into me. When are you are baptised into Jesus. We, are, we pass through the waters of baptism to be baptised into him in, into his church. And by the way, there is a baptism service on the, on, the Sunday, the, on Easter Sunday morning when we have one church Sunday. If you've not been baptised, consider it for two reasons. One, it's a command. There's lots of other reasons as well because I have a bit of a Baptist background too, so I'm a bit, a bit pushy on this. But um, it's not a command, but it is the joy, I tell you. Being baptised is a terrific experience. I've got to say that to you. If you've not been baptised, think about it. God is speaking to you. One baptism. And then because of that, we're one God and Father overall. Jesus brings us into the family of God. Through Jesus, we can say, Abba, Father. We get a spiritual dad. And that dad is, you know, he's is, is overall, isn't he? Our father who is in heaven. He's the boss. He's the, he's the, he's the chief. is the creator. He is everything, isn't he? And he's father to every single one of us. Even the people that really rub me up the wrong way. God is father to them and they need to recognise that. So there's a unifying person. And that's Jesus. secondly, I would suggest you there's a unifying perspective. And out of the fact that we're united in Jesus, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16, we read this phrase From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Which is exactly what the Corinthians were the Corinthians were, were doing. They were, they were looking at people from a worldly point of view. They fail to see the saviour behind the person. That's why Paul says, he says, who do you think Paul is anyway? Or Apollos for that matter? Servants, both of us. Servants who waited on you as you gradually learned to entrust your life to our mutual master. We carried out our servant assignments. I planted the seed, Apollos watered the plants, but God made you grow. It is not the one who plants or the one who waters who is at the center of this process, but God who makes things grow. Planting and watering are menial servants' jobs at minimum wage. What makes them worthwhile is the God we are serving. You see, in, in making them celebrities, the people are actually demeaning the very people they were actually make, making celebrity they had a wrong view of them. And Paul says, that you've got to get your thinking right. Who am I? Who's Apollos? We're just ordinary blokes. We're doing what God tells us. I've, we've got different gifts. I plant Apollos waters, but it's all about God. God gives the increase. If God wasn't in it, I could plant to the heart's content. Apollos could water to the heart's content, and nothing would happen. It's about God, you've got to see us right, you've got to see us as ordinary people, but who are serving, who are unappointed and anointed by an extraordinary God. And that's the way we need to look at church leaders. Church leaders are not perfect, they are ordinary, but it's the God behind them that we look to. And that's what Paul was encouraging, we need to look to the God behind them. In turn, how to, should leaders look at the church? I went to a, um, a, it was quite a small leaders meeting that was at Paul Key in a hotel of Paul Key and Terry Virgo was the, was the speaker there. And he was talking some aspects of leadership. I can't remember much about it. I, I don't even know if I can remember if I made any notes or not. But one thing he said, I thought, that stood out for me uh, and... Uh, and <coughs> was this, that leaders have to say, whenever they look out onto the church, they should see the Shekinah glory of God. In other words, they need to see the Shekinah glory of God in the church as a whole and in everybody who's in it, whatever stage of the journey we're at, if we're people, particularly people who've been saved by Christ, we carry the Shekinah glory of God. That's how we view each other. Leaders called, appointed and anointed, but nonetheless of themselves, ordinary and dependent upon God. And leaders who look at the church and see within everybody here, the Shekinah glory of God. And finally, the other thing that where unity flows from is the unifying practice. And the unifying practice is love is love. What do we read at the beginnings of uh, that little passage on Ephesians, we read this, be completely humble and patient, be gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. It's no coincidence, is it, that in the middle of Corinthians, this troubled church, there's the most beautiful passage on love that's ever been written. Love is patient, love is kind, love believes all, trusts all, I was gonna read it. I'm not going to, because I didn't have time, go away and look it up. Because and over everything, love is greater than knowledge, greater than gifting, There's all the implication in there. Everything is subservient to love, why? Because God is love. When we look at each other, when we, when we focus on Jesus and our faith in him as individuals, when we look at other people, and see the glory of Christ in them, even if we find it difficult or we don't agree with them. So agreement is, is, is that, that's not essential. What is, what is essential is we see Jesus behind them. And when we look at each other that way, then our practice has to be one of love because each of us has been called, blessed and anointed. And So we're all precious to Jesus. Jesus died for every single one of us. So the unifying practice is love. Let's be a diverse, dynamic, colorful, different, but united, respectful, trusting, and loving church. Amen.